World War Three, something that is necessarily, understandably, concerning a lot of people right now. With good reason, we have the first uh, war on European soil in so many decades. One of the parties is, you know, a major nuclear superpower, you know, one of the two major nuclear superpowers in the world, Russia. Yeah. And a lot of people are writing about, are we in World War Three? Is it going to go and further develop as the months roll on? Uh, very understandable concerns. But what I find curious as an Ahmadi Muslim is that the caliph of our community, his name's His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, who's been the caliph for what, 19 years now, has, especially in the last decade, been warning that we are building up to a world war, that we are building into uh, blocks which are splintering and are becoming more hostile to one another. Yeah. Uh, and now people are seeing the fruits of this, but he's gone around the world, you know, talking about this to world leaders for many years. And we have an article on this which was recently released, written by Demir Musa Rafi, the uh, editor of the Rational Religion blog. Uh, it's an excellent article. I just thought we'd go through some of the highlights of it. Um, but before we do that, let's have a look at a video of His Holiness Mirza Musa so people know kind of who he is, get a, get a, get a taste of uh, some of the things that he's done over the years. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that the movement like yours will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. You are a man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence. And you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. I've been there. Really? Yeah, where that happened. That courtyard. 
Okay, so that was uh, a bit of an introduction to him. Uh, that was, I think, released a, a, a few years ago now, but and he's gone on to do many more talks of, of the same nature. Uh, so let's have a look at some of the things he said. But first, uh, we have uh, just some pictures. So the this is when he did his address in Japan, um, and the next one is when he went to the to UNESCO. Um, so he's been kind of all over the world doing these these kinds of talks: American Parliament, uh, British Parliament, American Senate. Yeah, American Senate, uh, British Parliament, uh, New Zealand Parliament, Canadian um, Parliament, EU Parliament, Germany military headquarters. Yeah. So uh, let's have a look at the first quote. So this is from 2013, and in a peace symposium, he was speaking about the economic hardships of Europeans. And so the, the peace symposium in itself was quite interesting. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about so that? So the peace symposium was a um, a yearly event that he commenced, um, where he, as a keynote speaker, would warn the public and also politicians. Uh, mm -hmm. prominent politicians such as Theresa May before she came into office as Prime Minister and Boris Johnson before he came into office as Prime Minister, um, that the world was moving towards uh, World War Three. That was the main thrust of the peace symposiums. Explicitly. Yeah. Yeah, it was explicit. Um, there was no doubt about it. Yeah. And you see the same politicians like Ed Davey, for example, who's a close friend of the Ahmadiyya community, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Mm. And he'd come and, and year on year and he'd listen. He would appreciate very much what was being said. But it was... I think sometimes they thought to themselves potentially, <laughs> well, this message isn't changing. Yeah. Um, but there was no need for it to change. It was the message of the time. And now we're seeing um, that absolutely he was 100% correct. And do you remember what Ed Davey said a few years ago? What did he, he say? Uh, in one of his talks, he thought, uh, you know, he said, I, I thought, you know, maybe you're a bit pessimistic, basically, about the outlook of the world. And I realized you were completely right. Really? Yeah, yeah, he said that in one of, um, I think maybe it was at Ajasa or a peace symposium. Oh, really? Um, and because I, I think this was maybe 2018, 19, when he, mm. he saw that things were forming in this way, yeah. that blocks were forming and yeah. that uh, hostilities were increasing. Yeah. So let's track how this happened, uh, at least some of the highlights of some of his speeches over the years. So the first one is from a peace symposium speech delivered in 2013. And he was speaking to the economic hardship of the Europeans. And he said, we should not sit here and only be concerned at the prospect of becoming involved in wars that are taking place in Asia. But we should also be extremely concerned about the problems on our own doorsteps. If we look at Europe's own financial crisis and its long-term effects, we see that it is causing restlessness to spread within Europe's population, and this anxiety is increasing at great speed. If not handled properly, the results of such frustrations and desperation will prove to be catastrophic. And to me, he's talking at, uh, A, the economic problems since 2008, which worsened over the next few years um, in Europe to a degree uh, in particular, um, and how economic frustrations can turn into nationalism, they can turn into more kind of far-right sentiments, and yeah society will turn inward against itself yeah um and around this time this is when the migrant crisis was starting to pick up because this is also when when the syrian war was starting to really pick up um so he was talking about how these things can develop over time and in the next uh in the next one we see that in 2013 2013 syria wars going on ukraine is deciding between eu and the russia deal and he said in a, in a reception held in los angeles the direction of the world is moving. The direction the world is moving in suggests that the dark shadow of war is being cast over a very large part of the globe. If war breaks out, then countless innocent women, children, and elderly people will all die. The destruction will be greater than what was witnessed in the previous two world wars. And around this time, I believe it was uh, 2013. The next photo will be his address to Parliament, uh, and the next one will be a slightly later address in uh, the Netherlands. 
Um, and in that parliament address, you'll see in the next slide, we have uh, this very, very uh, prescient uh, quote where he says, the world has become a global village and so a lack of mutual respect and a failure to join together to promote peace will not only harm the local area, city or country, but in fact will ultimately lead to the destruction of the entire world. We are all well aware of the horrific devastation caused by the last two world wars due to the acts of certain countries. The signs are that another world war is on the horizon. If a world war breaks out, the Western world will also be deeply affected by its far-reaching and devastating consequences. So, I mean, can you, you know, um, can you speak to that, especially that first half where he talks about the world's become a global village? And that's one of the themes. He, he always uses that phrase, a global village, and he talks about that. Mm. What does that kind of mean to you? And what, what did you take from this, maybe at the time and also now? At the time, I probably didn't take much from it <laughs> because you don't, in a sense. Uh, the, the statements like this, they're valued um, more, in yeah. fact, retrospectively, once everybody's... Once for the thickos like me, this becomes obvious what the <laughs> issue is. Um, but I think the key point here is that you... It's exactly what he says, which is that uh, failure of peace at a local level, you might think it's a local problem, hmm. but it actually has far-reaching consequences for regions and then for nations and then internationally. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. Ukraine and the devastation in Ukraine and between Russia and Ukraine not just since February 2022, but actually going back to the Donbass region from 2014 onwards yeah. uh, with the Maidan coup and things like that. People may have just thought that was a harmless coup kind of thing. It was just a coup in an Eastern yeah. European country and blah, blah, blah. But actually... Or a revolution, as, or a revolution. as many people deem it. Yes, or a revolution. Um, some say, you know, externally sponsored revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, well, that's just a kind of local event. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just a local event. It had significant effect on the relationships between the EU and the Russia nato and russia and that necessarily because of the alliances that are in place mm. that draws in a whole host of other countries and of course crimea and of course crimea yeah, yeah. so um that's one thing i think the other thing that comes out of this particular statement of his is that he specifically talks about world war mm-hmm. right he extrapolates local events going up to world war mm-hmm. and even now there are some people who still think that this is actually a bit far-fetched yeah even with the russian ukraine crisis they're a bit like oh well we don't think it's going to go that far so it's still a local thing yeah uh, but they are still haven't comprehended the prescient nature of this particular statement it's a very prescient statement because he's seized by the light of god mm-hmm. um, because this is a person who has a very intimate and close relationship with god he is as we believe the khalifa of the messiah He's the representative of the prophet sent for this age mm-hmm. uh, to represent the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, ultimately. Yeah. Um, so this is, in actual fact, uh, the statement of an individual who is guided by God. Mm. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the reason it's such a prescient uh, statement, which at the time people didn't appreciate uh, mm. for its depth and prescient nature. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's have a look at the next one. So this is 2015. This is when the Syria war has really hotted up, when uh, Ukraine has had the uh, Maidan has happened, yeah. and they now are in a war with the separatists in um, Donbass. And uh, this is what he says in that National Peace Symposium. He says, the world is being consumed by various issues that are leading to frustration and resentment, which in turn are undermining peace. For example, the effects of the financial crisis continue to be felt in much of the world, Then there is the conflict in Ukraine and the global arms race. These are all threats to world peace that are not linked to Islam, but rather have developed as a result of an unquenchable thirst for power, influence and resources. So firstly, he's talking about the financial crisis and how those effects continue to be uh, felt. 
And then he talks about Ukraine, global arms race, and then he talks about the root causes of that. So, is there anywhere you want to begin when we when we have a look at have a look at this statement? Um, well, I think the important piece that comes out of this in particular is um, two things: is the pairing of the Ukraine and the global arms race. Yeah, yeah. So I think you were on the same page as me there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what happened between twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two? Well, I mean, we can go even further back, which is in 2002, the Americans came out of the Anti-Ballistic Missiles um, Treaty, yeah. one of the major nuclear treaties. Um, and they said to Russia, uh, we're going to build up our system, but don't worry, it's not against you. <laughs> Russia said, okay. And they eventually basically said, well, we'll do the same thing. <laughs> um, and uh, around this time, this was post-Crimea, when Russia annexed Crimea, these tensions were in Ukraine. And um, you have... Uh, a buildup of nuclear weapons. You have a buildup of the systems to deliver nuclear weapons. And in fact, by 2018, Putin does a speech where he basically says we have not only nuclear parity, but he claimed he has essentially nuclear supremacy. Yeah, with the hypersonic missiles. Yeah. So um, this is the time of the global arms race uh, of nuclear and otherwise. And uh, it was very much, you know, U Ukraine, as we now see, has always been, you know, the modern center of a lot of this conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the threats to world peace that are not linked to Islam, because this is a time, 2015 especially, terrorist yes, attacks, yes. you know, migrant crisis, a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. And, you know, I think I understand that this speech, a lot of it was talking about, you know, there are world problems which aren't due to Islam. There are deeper issues here. Yeah. Um, and he says this is a result of an unquenchable thirst for power, influence and resources. I think that's really interesting because uh, this is talking about the root human values that lead to wars, that lead to conflicts, um, and the injustices that breed uh, a lot of the resentment that comes out. So, I mean, even kind of very historically, this is going kind of almost ancient history, but part of the reason why a lot of the Ukrainians, um, especially in the West, have such a negative view of Russia is because of their colonialism under Stalin, Stalin famines that were caused by, um, by Soviet Russia, and a lot of the injustices there, which do propagate through generations. Now, you know, that may lead to their own injustices uh, as time goes on. Mm. But, you know, these things have consequences. And that itself, you know, Soviet Russia was a result of, um, ultimately it was a justification for the same human values of greed, wanting power. They claimed it was in the name of communism as some kind of great uh, revolution for the working class and ended up repressing the working class, both in their freedom of thought and ultimately in their financial freedom more than the catalyst whom they hated so much. Yeah. So uh, this is what came out of that one block. And then, of course, you know, we've all been witness to what's happened with the capitalist block and the injustices that they've um, perpetrated. And also that at the, at the heart of it, there is this kind of insatiable greed. Yeah. You know, these countries have gone around the world plundering <clears throat> resources, deposing governments, destroying whole nations. Yeah. Ultimately, so that they can what prop up their currencies and they can extract resources. They can have markets for their own commodities, basically. Yeah, and, and ultimately for the elite, it's so that they feel that they're in power, I think. They feel yeah. that they have, you know, this is where they deserve to be and they have to maintain that at any cost mm. without any thought of you know, who are the victims that are suffering and maybe we should seek to reduce what we have for the sake of justice. So these are some of the things that he's talking about here yeah. um, and which ultimately continue to be in operation and have led to, to where we are today. So the other thing that comes out of this particular pairing is that Ukraine and the global, global arms race mm -hmm. is that um, when the Maidan revolution happened, mm. you had the separation of Donetsk and Lugansk mm. regions who said that, well, hold on, we didn't elect these new people yeah when that happened you then had the ukrainian army fighting against the republics the breakaway republics 
um, and you had the beginning of this war uh, from 2014 onwards, and they had the, the attempts at peace treaties, Minsk one and Minsk two, in I think it was 2014 and then tw- early 2015, both failed. Um, and then between 2016 and 2022, you've had an ongoing war which just never made it onto our media, mm. basically. And the reason that's tied to Ukraine and the global arms race is because, you know, the West funded the United- Ukrainian army, you know, to the teeth for yeah. that war. Uh, and they no doubt saw that particular theater of conflict as an opportunity to sell them weapons, mm. to make money in their corporations and their military corporations, you know, to get big bouncing, you know, bonuses that year, mm. from, you know, bumper, bumper crops um, in terms of their shareholder yields and things, you know, and that kind of shows how um, the economic situation of the world ties very, you know, neatly in a way into local conflicts and exacerbate them. Because actually what needed to happen was not the funding of the wall. What mm. actually needed to happen was for people to help bring them to the negotiating table mm-hmm. again and again and again. But it's sad that actually the last negotiation that happened was in 2015, you know, at the time of this particular speech. And since then, for six, seven years, there's been no negotiations, which actually no actual treaties that have sat down to actually mm. happen proper before a full-scale invasion. Mm. So uh, a few months later, he did it again. In uh, he spoke about these things again in a speech in Tokyo in November 2015. He said, "We are living in extremely precarious and dangerous times, in which the state of the world is a cause of huge concern. Conflict and disorder are consuming the world and threatening international peace and security in Eastern Europe. Hostilities between Russia and Ukraine and other European countries are continuing to flare." So this is talking about, as you said. The, the war in the Donbass is is ongoing. And actually, by November 2015, it was largely off Western screens. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was certainly on Russian screens and obviously in Ukraine. Yeah. But it was largely off off Russian screens. But this was, you know, something which was continuing to um, to, to burn uh, in, in eastern Ukraine. Mm. And as we'll see on the next slide, he, he wrote this book around this time where he published this book, which was a collection of so many of his speeches from which these extracts are taken, yeah. called World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace. So as you can see, very arresting image on the top. Yeah. Um, but it's basically about nuclear war and how we need to try and avoid nuclear war. Um, and he talks about the ec- global economic crisis continues to manifest newer and graver dangers almost every week and how this, this period is similar to World War II. And in this uh, book, he had a series of letters that he wrote to all the world's, the, the major world leaders of the, of the developed so countries. So speeches and letters he'd sent to world leaders warning <laughs> Absolutely. Them. Not just developed uh, countries, but actually often um, less Re- developed countries as and well. And also religious leaders, other religious yeah, leaders as like well. Yeah, and like the Pope as, as well, wasn't it? And yeah. some, of the, some other religious leaders, I think. Um, so this is a very, very interesting letter. This was to uh, Obama in 2012. Do you want to read it? Yeah, so my request to you and indeed to all world leaders is that instead of using force to suppress other nations, use diplomacy, dialogue and wisdom. The major powers of the world, such as the United States, should play their role towards establishing peace. They should not use the acts of smaller countries as a pretext to disturb world harmony. Currently, nuclear arms are not only possessed by the United States and other major powers, rather even relatively smaller countries now possess such weapons of mass destruction where those who are in power are often trigger-happy leaders who act without thought or consideration. Thus, it is my humble request to you to strive to your utmost to prevent the major and minor powers from erupting into a third world war. There should be no doubt in our minds that if we fail in this task, then the effects and aftermath of such a war will not be limited to only the poor countries of Asia, Europe and the Americas. Rather, our future generations will have to bear the horrific consequences of our actions and children everywhere in the world will be born disabled or deformed. They will never forgive their elders who led the world to a global catastrophe. Mm. That is an arresting statement as well. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was actually back in in 2012. Wow. Um, 
uh, just when Syria was hotting up uh, pre-Ukraine. Yes. Uh, interestingly, Obama actually withheld arms to Ukraine. Um, oh, did he? Yeah, he did. He uh, he he withheld uh, arms towards the end of I think towards the end of his pre- uh, president second term or mid middle to end of it. Mm. Uh, but Trump Trump uh, okayed them after heavy pressure with Russia getting everything else that was going on. Oh, really? So yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's you know this is a, an arresting statement as you said. Um, but unfortunately, the 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 ultimate march, geopolitical march, continued virtually the same. Weapons, nuclear weapons, continued to to build up, and, and as time went the, on, and the withdrawal from the uh, the INF treaty, the INF treaty, yeah. So uh, that happened a few years later as well. So um, these warnings were there, and these letters were there, and these speeches were there. Intermediate range nuclear forces treaty, yeah. In twenty nineteen, yeah. that happened. Yeah, that was that was a uh, one of the uh, one of the later sad developments, and. In the next slide, we'll see the letter to Prime Minister David Cameron. He wrote, We observe that the situation of the world today is similar to the situation in 1932, both economically and politically. There are many other similarities and parallels which, when combined together, form the same image today that was witnessed just prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. If these sparks ever truly ignite, we will witness the terrifying scenario of a Third World War. And the uh, match has been struck, uh, as, as we see now. Uh, and this is such an interesting statement. Early 1930s, yeah, you know, economic problems Very coming up. Very specific. Yeah, I mean, what was that seven years to uh, to, um, to, to 1939? And uh, yeah, around the same time periods. Now we have we have seen that things have yes. deteriorated. And what are the kinds of things that he's talking about here? I mean, there was the economic situation mm. post recession, a lot of disenfranchisement. The West has got around it by just printing endless money, mm. and uh, no surprise now we're seeing more and more inflation finally catching up with us. Mm. Um, we uh, we saw that hostilities were increasing, the blocks were forming, um, nuclear treaties were being abandoned, nuclear arms were increasing. You know, within a few years, Syria had both Russia and America working on opposite sides. Yeah. America once uh, actually killed many, many Russian soldiers mm. uh, in a in a particular incident, which Putin chose not to escalate and not to retaliate. Mm. Um, so, you know, the... The, the, the stage is being set. stage is being set, um, but in around 2012, this is uh, particularly prescient. Um, it was because at this time, in fact, there was a real detente between America and, and Russia, actually, mm, you know, yeah. between Obama and Putin. And it was thought to be a kind of thawing of the Cold War attitudes mm. towards Russia and the West. But, you know, I think I think ultimately, you know, looking back, at least America have been, you know, they had Afghanistan, Iraq and just Libya just then. And that was a, a big breaking point between America and Russia, because yeah. uh, Russia at least claimed and Putin claimed that they'd been lied to. They had got the um, UN Security Council vote by means of saying that they wouldn't try and do regime change in Libya, that'd be more of a humanitarian mission. And then that, that you know, didn't happen and, uh, and it was regime change. Yeah. So Putin uh, and Russia, the Russians have often cited that as one of the major incidents. Mm. Uh, and that was just 2011, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was kind of at the beginning of... Or and the, then Syria was the big, big split in 2015, 2016. Yeah. yeah. You know, when Russia effectively stepped up against uh, proxy forces of the United States. Yeah. Uh, in in support of Bashar al-Assad, yeah, and that very squarely then put him in the in the crosshairs mm. uh, of the United States. I think, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so many letters to so many leaders, as we'll see. Um, and after, and this was actually in the next slide. He he wrote another series of letters um, in after at the beginning of COVID or around you know around the first wave around yeah, the summer twenty twenty. Yeah. So this is uh, a letter that he sent to the Prime Minister of Ghana. He said with the 
When we examine the financial impact of the coronavirus, it is clearly apparent that it is causing immense damage to economies across the world, including those of the most powerful countries on earth. History tells us that the worst of mankind is often witnessed when economies collapse and the wealth and power of a nation is threatened. Often selfishness and greed prevail over justice and fairness, and nations seek to usurp the rights of other countries to save themselves. And in this way, devastating wars and bloody conflicts have often been ignited by economic forces. A glance at history makes it clear that wars are often sparked by economic pressures and frustrations as nations seek to unjustly fulfill their vested interests through warfare and violence. If and when a third world war breaks out, it cannot be assumed that Africa will not be drawn into the conflict because the modern world has come to resemble a global village in which each nation and continent is now more connected than ever before. So uh, just tell me one or two of the things that jump out of you from that. Um, I think, again, it's the emphasis on the, the economic situation mm. spiraling into uh, military uh, escalation. Yeah. Because what happens is, I guess, with economic events is that it debilitates nations which were previously top dogs. Mm. And they seek to then maintain their top dog position when other contenders come into the field to try and exploit their economic weaknesses yeah. uh, with military solutions because that's all that's open to them. Right. And that's, I think, what happens. Um, you often also get, in in the case of our current issue, you've got a massive amount of money printing that's happened, a third of all dollars in circulation in the last few years. Mm. So the consequence ultimately will be, um, you know, where's all that money slushing around? It's slushing around in in a lot of co- American corporations, and that money has to find new commodities and new markets mm. to soak up. Otherwise, you're going to get rampant inflation back, back home, yeah. which is already happening. Yeah. Uh, and one of the major ways to do that is effectively to open up new whole nations um, to uh, corporations, um, which can then sell their goods to those particular uh, markets. Mm. So... The introduction of the e- of Ukraine, you know, into the EU, or the the hope to get Ukraine into the EU, um, could be seen as uh, as a as a as a move for that. It's a very large country, and it it has a very significant um, you know commodities market, which would attract a lot of global. Yeah, I mean, finance. I think that was that was the case in 2013, 14. That was you know that was that's why yeah, yeah. at least from a certain view, which I think we'd we'd agree with, that is part of the motivation for. Uh, bring people into into something like the EU to open up their markets. Actually, it's yeah, not, it's not even hidden that that's no, part that, of the that's idea, exactly right? Exactly right. Is that? But they say that's you know there are there are benefits to that. Yeah, of course there are sides. benefits to that. Um, so, so I think what you're also talking about is uh, relevant to when you look at America and China or the West and China. You see how China came out of coronavirus and how the West have and the economic difference of the two. You can easily see that that can translate into um, you know more conflict, more. Um, uh, a greater motivation to try and build up wealth through uh, less than legitimate means. Mm. Um, so the next uh, the next uh, slide I think is very interesting as well. He says this was in October 2021. This was a, a more of a not a private forum, but a, a forum directly to uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He answered a question. He said, "I feel that it is quite possible that a war or a conflict can break out after this pandemic." of coronavirus ends and its ruinous effects could last for many years before it returns to normality. Thus, we must pray that such circumstances may not arise, that may lead to wars, and that the world leaders act with sense so that the global situation can stabilise as quickly as possible and return to normal. And we can maybe even say that this is something which uh, which potentially Russia have used as well. Um, this would be an interpretation of the events, but I mean, it's certainly... 
is the fact that Russia is attacking at a time when the West is uh, necessarily weakened uh, greatly by coronavirus, whereas in many respects, Russia's economy, uh, if you look at their commodity stocks, if you look at their uh, debt to GDP ratio, in some of its basics is actually more sound than a lot yeah. of the Western commodities, yeah. a lot of the Western markets. And is this a time when you know China are going to invade Taiwan, potentially? Is this a time when uh, these things are going to be exploited. These weaknesses are going to be exploited. Yeah. And the caliph is here warning the whole world against this kind of practice. Yeah. You know, don't take advantage of your fallen foe. Yes. Um, you know, act with, with as much justice as possible. Um, so I think this is a, uh, it's just remarkable, um, you know, the kind of advice which he's given over the years and how it's evolved along with the developing world situation. But actually his advice really predated it. And it kind of, he saw yeah. the, he saw the, the, um, the root of it. And then we've just seen it flourish. Yes. And now people take, you know, oh, there's a big tree here. But actually the root of it was there all along, which was these human values of greed, of materialism, uh, and of in injustice mm. uh, that inevitably bloom. And True, that's what but in, you know, greed and justice has been there for a long time, actually. Mm. Um, especially so it was. in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, in the 21st century. I think the key point here is, is that why did he start saying it around this time? Why in 2012, 2013 did he start making this very clear, very explicit to Theresa May sitting there, Boris Johnson sitting there in the peace symposium? Mm. Why did he put it like that? Uh, and the reason ultimately is because, you know, he's guided by God. Mm. I think we have to state that very clearly that the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is uh, the representative mm. of the um, Messiah of the age. Uh, he is, um, as such, the person who is... Uh, commissioned um, in the sense of uh, appointed um, by a, uh, a process which is divinely guided. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, he is God's man on earth, if you wanted to put it on a, in a kind of um, colloquial sense. Yeah. And so that's the fundamental yeah. core issue as to why now, because he's, he was, a, he was a caliph from 20, 2003. Yeah. So why is it around 2010, around that time, you know, he started making these statements much more explicit. Mm. Um, uh, it's not only because of, that he sees with the light of divine insight, mm. but also God, God guides him directly on these matters as well. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, let's just, to, to close this off, let's talk about what he said you should, what we can do to avert this. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have here him talking to Boris Johnson and the next one him in Congress. So I'll just put these up. But, uh, but he says this in the next quote, you'll be able to see, he says, uh, and this has been his message throughout in all of these speeches. Yeah. He hasn't just been fear-mongering, he's actually... No, 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 I mean, the whole, his whole thing was that we can avert it. In fact, he said that many, many times. He said that this can be averted if people change their, yeah. um, their practices uh, as well as their beliefs. Hmm. So uh, he said in May 2021 to a group of journalists from Gambia, if there is no justice, there is no peace. If you have double standards, as we can see in today's world, shown by the big powers... They cannot maintain peace in the world. This is why you can see there is disturbance in the world today. So if there's no justice, there is no peace. Now, why do you think that, how are those two things linked? Um, I think you can't have justice ultimately without accountability. Okay. But, but, what, but uh, more about justice and peace. Why do you think those, why is he saying that those two things are so intimately linked? Well, because injustice breeds a disorder. You know, and resentment and resentment and hatred. You yeah. know, if you bomb somebody's house and the children are the only ones who survive, guess yeah. what? When they grow up and they think of their parents who had died by these bombs, guess mm. what they're going to potentially go and do? Of yeah. the three of them, at least one of them might end up being a terrorist. Mm. You know, so it just breeds a cycle of violence. Yeah, um, that doesn't end. 
um, in terms of you know how to obtain justice. Well, I mean, the the next slide he he talks about this, and again, this is not something which is new. He's been talking about this the, the whole time. Yeah, he says I've been telling. Oh, yeah, here he says I've been telling. I've been telling <laughs> all the time to the people of the world, to politicians, to leaders, that they ought to change themselves and try to establish true justice, absolute justice in the world, and discharge their duties to their creator and their fellow beings. Otherwise, there is no guarantee about what is going to happen. And we can see a very dark and bleak end of this world. This was in September 2021. So uh, here he talks about absolute justice and recognizing your creator and your duties to your creator and to fellow beings. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you were going to talk about uh, accountability and, and yeah, is that so, I mean, part of how you think this, you know, the link between justice and recognizing your creator, is that how they link this idea of accountability? Yeah, I mean, I think we uh, we talk about accountability when it comes to our politicians being accountable to the people. We talk yeah. about accountability of doctors so that they don't you know, the medical malpractice doesn't occur. We even talk about things like accountability in construction work. Mm. You know that there should be audit and oversight of people who are constructing buildings. Yeah, I'm okay. very passionate about that personally. As well. <laughs> so you know, accountability features in every every aspect of a civilized society. Yeah. And in fact, the hallmark of a civilized society is that everybody <laughs> is accountable. Yeah. You know, for their responsibilities. You have good courts, you have good police. Yeah, you exactly. Know. You have yeah. balanced judiciary against the against the legislation, legislature, etc. So, yeah. you know, that's what a civilized society does. It creates systems of accountability between human beings. Mm. Um, but ultimately, when these systems break down because of catastrophes such as war, pandemic, economic collapse, yeah, um, and these systems are no longer in place to hold people to account. Yeah. Then, what is a, what are people accountable to, which will keep them from behaving to take their neighbor's car, to take their neighbor's food, to yeah. shoot their neighbor in the head and take their supplies? Yeah. Right. To take their neighbor's home. What is to stop them? There is accountability. Is the, is the motivating. Uh, it, it is the break. limiting factor. It's yeah. the limiting factor. It is the break on human behavior. Yeah. And um, if you don't have a belief in God. Hmm. And you have a belief that this is all that there is. We are an accidental byproduct of, product of an accidental universe, and death is the end of all life. Yeah. Then you will necessarily seek to maximize your pleasure, or seek to maximize your gain. I should say. Yeah. Depending upon what is your purpose and motivation in life, right. if it's to live for your children and for your family, if you're in a situation where their lives are under threat, and the only way you can see out is to go and rob your neighbor. Yeah. That, that is ultimately the inevitable conclusion. Of your mind, of going to be of your mindset, and because you don't have a limiting factor there, yeah. So people often point to less developed countries, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, there, you know, there's all this lawlessness there. They are, they, uh, you know, you go there, your life is under danger, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's true, but those are still in societies that are usually quite religious, mm. right? So can you imagine if they didn't have the break, the limiting factor of belief in God, that God is watching them, that mm. they will be held accountable for their actions after death? Hmm. Which is why, actually, when it's focused on politicians and world leaders, is very significant because politicians and world leaders often feel already that they are above the law. In many respects, they literally are, and in many respects, they literally are. They pass legislation that you can't prosecute them once they leave office. Yeah, you know. So um, the fact that he's addressing politicians and world leaders, and he says to them explicitly, "You should try and change yourself." Yeah. Stop trying to change the world out there. Begin mm. with yourself. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think that's a very important principle that they're not going to, you're not going to get absolute justice until the people who feel that they are above the law and in some respects are above certainly um, what we would consider the ordinary person's law. Yeah. Even from a particular it's a banal, simple, this aspect of taxing, you know, yeah. tax havenry and, and dodging tax. Um, politicians and leaders do it very regularly. Mm. Um, so, you know, unless they change and become 
um, you know, people who feel that they are accountable to something greater than themselves, uh, then you're not going to get absolute justice in the world. And also when you uh, have a, when you believe in a creator and you genuinely believe in creator and you believe that others are the product of that creator, that they are the creation, Yes. then you nat- naturally have a compassion for them. You naturally recognize that you cannot mistreat them because you both belong to the same being. Yeah. It's like when, you know, if you have the child, a child that you see on the street, you may be sympathetic towards them, but you're not going to have any special compassion to them when compared to, say, the child of your brother, yes, right? Yes. Because the child of your brother, you have an intimate link with that, with the, with the one uh, that the child came from. Yes. And in this case as well, when you have, um, when you, you know, you may see someone in Vietnam or China or wherever it is, or Ukraine or Russia, you know, they may they may have no real link to you culturally or familiarly or anything. But if you see them as just other beings of the same creator, then you recognize that, you know, I have a responsibility to this person. This person is my kith and kin, mm. and I will be held responsible for how I treat them because, you know, we're all the product of the same being. Yeah. So uh, I think... It's all the creation of the same being. The, the creation of the same being. Yeah. So I think this is another aspect of why when you recognize your creator truly... And I would say maybe in some of these uh, countries you spoke of, you know, there may be great variations in how much they really, uh, true, how much true religiosity and spirituality has sunk into them. Yes. But when you truly recognize your creator and you truly see others as the creation of God, then it's inevitable not only that you are just to them, but that you are compassionate to them. Mm. You're not seeing them as a resource to be plundered. You're not seeing them as a population to be subdued. You're seeing them as, um, as a people to be helped. And you don't see the world as a zero-sum game where it's either we win and you lose or you win and we lose, but actually we can both win and build a better world together. So I think this is what he's been talking about for so many years. He's been talking about recognize your creator, recognize your responsibility, your moral responsibility to your creator and your moral responsibility to others. And it's through that that you breed absolute justice and it's through the absolute justice that you have peace. But when you have absolute injustice, which is actually what we have been seeing over so many years, Mm. then you have a total absence of peace and you have further disorder, which I think, unfortunately, is is the path that the world has chosen, despite the caliph's warnings. You know, God willing, maybe there's still time to turn back and maybe people will see this um, first shot across the bow, in a sense, from Russia as a warning that actually maybe we need to reconsider how things go on both sides. Yeah. Uh, And people can turn back from uh, from this dark path uh, upon which they have set out.